Press the button. Okay. Hey, everybody. Uh, as always, please let me know if we exist. Uh, I require your confirmation. I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. I'm not sure whether that's coming from my streaming software or it's coming from your headphones. Have you got a the video playing somewhere? Yeah. No? No, I'm all in headphones. Okay, perfect. Okay. No, it should be good. Okay. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to a very special episode of Open Space. Uh, later on, I know for some people that's awesome. For other people, uh, you're asleep and you're going to have to catch this tomorrow. I apologize. Um, and that's a, you know, again, that's a good, sincere Canadian apology. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Casey Hanmer, who is a theoretical physicist and works at NASA. Casey, welcome to, uh, to Open Space. Thank you. Great to be here. So, uh, before we get into all of this, do you want to do you want to provide your uh, you know your disclaimer? My disclaimer. Yeah, yeah I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the I mean, the most important disclaimer is that um, NASA is a publicly funded institution, and I'm, I'm lucky to be employed there at JPL, um, and they encourage us to share our enthusiasm and our love for space and for science with the general public. In fact, it's part of NASA's mission, and um, and so I'm kind of doing work uh, this evening in a way. Um, but at the same time, I have to be absolutely stringently clear that I'm, uh, my views expressed tonight represent my own opinion, my own you know, almost terrible opinions um, and not official opinions of NASA or, or in, in any way. And, and you know, NASA has a, a, an office full of professionals who do professional communications to make sure that NASA's official views are well understood and she should refer to them or to the website if you want to get NASA's official view on anything. Perfect. There. So NASA. Great. So you know uh, I'm going to say something cool. Yeah, it's all my fault, not Casey's fault. Uh, if you have any concerns, uh, just bring it all back to me. Um, all right. I think I got the. I think I got the echo. If you're still hearing the echo, let me know. Yeah. Um. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so so Casey, what do you do? Who are you? Um, I'm a, a deeply confused physicist. Um, I grew up in Australia, as you can probably tell from my accent. Um, and, you know, as an Australian, Australia only, only got a space agency quite recently. It was um, always a dream of mine to work on space-oriented stuff. And over time, that becomes subsumed into doing physics. And I got a PhD in physics. And then I realized, um, you know, halfway through my PhD, which was at Caltech, that NASA was only a few miles away and SpaceX just across the other side of the city. And I decided that, um, you know, while I was young and full of energy, I'd probably rather work on that. Thank you very much. And so I decided to switch careers for the second or third or fourth time. Um, and after a few years in the wilderness, I'd worked on a bunch of different interesting things. Um, decided to, I uh, was, uh, say, I uh, was uh, recruited at, at uh, JPL. I work right now, I develop software, uh, mostly for GPS and um, image processing systems. But I do a little bit of everything, and it's, it's a lot of fun because. Um, it allows me to combine both uh, software engineering, which is something that I'm still learning, and um, and physics, which is something that I'm still learning, and combining them in ways to solve new and interesting problems every day. So the where you came across my radar, and I think you came across sort of many people's radar, sort of all at the same time, was you wrote just a, just a wonderful blog post on your personal blog, nothing to do with NASA all about how you felt like people were really underestimating what the implications of Starship, and if not specifically Starship, but just this idea of reusable rocketry, where this takes humanity. So can you kind of give your, um, you know, sort of a version of, of sort of, you know, what you're presenting there? Yeah, so I am. Um... I've been working on these, these blog topics on a variety of different things, and, and uh, I was very pleasantly surprised to see my, my viewership climb by about a factor of a thousand. And, um, and I discovered, a, <laughs> I discovered a, a neat trick, which I think journalists have known for a long time, which is if, if, you, if you include the word Elon Musk yeah. in a blog post or an article enough, uh, you will generate clicks. Um, but I think it's also important to understand that in doing so, I tapped into, into a kind of vein of profound optimism amongst the space enthusiast public. Um, which are people who have always been interested in space going back to before the dawn of the space age really um, and really want to see a narrative that evokes uh, expansive exploration uh, inclusive um, kind of narrative you know there's something for everyone to do they can get involved they can hope they can dream and I think SpaceX has tapped into that incredibly effectively um, possibly without even intending to at least not in such a, a general way um, and and you know I'm 
just every day I'm keeping track on what Starship is doing and what it's up to. Um, one of the things that that uh, my physics background allows me to do is to essentially do the math on how right. how well the Starship works and all this kind of stuff. And there's dozens of people out there who who do basically the same thing, and you can find them on YouTube and you can find them on Twitter, and they do the same sort of calculations. and And I feel like I'm a I'm a, like a kind of in the corner of the room in the, in that group. But every now and then, you know, someone has an interesting question, and I can solve that problem. I write a little bit of code or whatever and solve that problem. And, and one of the things that I realized was that people were talking about Starship, you know, in, in terms of the context of doing human exploration of the moon and Mars and deep space. Um, and they, they weren't really understanding despite, um, I'm just got a notification that my internet connection's unstable. So if I drop out, yep. just kind of, I'll come back, I guess. Uh, people, people were really getting, uh, even though Elon had talked about it really like, how different SpaceX's plans to use the Starship were from more traditional space exploration plans that you might have seen in movies like The Martian or the Mars Direct Plan developed by Bob Zubrin and, and Dave Baker um, or, or other things like that. And so I thought, well, this is, this is a really great nexus to, to approach a blog post because I can start up by explaining what the public perception is and then why you know, that's, you know, you know, aspects of it are right, aspects of it might not be quite right, and then what the future might actually entail and, and it, you know, it ends with happiness, you know, like good story. Like this is, this is something that's good because if it turns out that rockets are much cheaper and much more powerful than we previously thought, we can do much more exciting things. So, I mean, the, so what do you see as the, you know, as the implications of this, you know, if it works and we're still, you know, we're now just a couple of days after the Mark one blew its top off, uh, there are some big unknowns still <laughs> about whether or not, this, you know, that this, that, you know, we still don't know necessarily that this thing is going to be able to land uh, in the way that it's intending. I mean, it's such a dangerous process to come back from, from low earth orbit to reenter the earth's atmosphere. And it is a, a fairly mm. different way to approach it than anyone has ever done this before. So we're still waiting to see if this even works, but let's just assume that the, future versions do work that they do they are able to kind of get this thing up and running that it will be able to land it is a fully reusable two-stage rocket what are the implications for for carrying stuff to space yeah so um i think it's fair to assume that given enough time the team at spacex is extremely clever and extremely well motivated and they will solve this problem because really they've got a, a very clear vision for what the rocket should be able to do and people have attempted um, an attempt to do this in the past. Um, and the, the, the aim of the game is to is to increase the capacity and reduce the cost to launch things to orbit. So if we look at, say, the previous you know, couple of years of, of launches, there's been on the order of, say, 500 tons of stuff launched to low Earth orbit a year. Now, if the Starship is able to do everything that Elon wants it to be able to do, which it's safe to assume eventually it will be able to do that sort of thing, then we might see a, a, a Starship launching three times a day. It's about a 1,000 launches a year per Starship, um, and each launch 100 tonnes. So each Starship is able to move 100,000 tonnes to low-Earth orbit per year. Now, how many Starships are there? Well, if they're able to weld them together outside, I mean, they might have to do some process improvement on the welding, on the welding as we've seen. But, uh, but to, give, to put that in context, um, Boeing produces something like um, 550 737s a year, um, until quite recently was able to do it without making them crash. So. Um, it's not impossible to, to foresee a future where you know, a starship, a starship production essentially is not constrained, um, and you can produce as many of them as, as, as you need to. Um, but if only if one is necessary, if one is enough to launch 100,000 tons to low Earth orbit in a year, that's enough to increase the total amount of mass to low Earth orbit by a factor of 200 over the current status quo with all the launches of all the different countries. Um, right, like like one like one starship <coughs> matches yeah. the launch capability on its own of all the rest of humanity by a factor of 200. Um, so yeah, one, one starship launching a thousand times in a year. Yeah. The same. yeah. Every, everyone else combined for a whole year. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and so that, the sort of mass you're talking about starts to become a kind of crazy. So um, in the immediate post-war era, a, a large cargo plane could move about 10 tons of cargo, such as in the Berlin airlift. Um, and, and even now, like the, the, the total cargo mass that you can fit in a long-haul aircraft is on the order of 10 to 100 tons um, for, for a very, very large, uh, say, military transport or something like that. 
But if you think about the container ships, the world's largest container ships um, can move like 20,000 T, uh, 20 foot equivalent units, each of which is on average about 12 tons or something like that. So that's um, almost 100,000 tons. Uh, so you know, the largest container ships might be a factor of two or three more than that. Um, so you're starting to say, well, the amount of cargo that uh, that a single starship could move in a year is equivalent to what a large container ship can move in a single voyage. So, I mean, there's on this you know, several tens of thousands of container ships in the world, uh, only only a few hundred of the largest ones, um, and obviously their voyages take only a few weeks at a time. But you start to see that you know if there were hundreds of of starships, then the total amount of cargo being able to be moved from the surface of the Earth into low Earth orbit starts to be comparable to the total sort of cargo masses that say the port of Long Beach might process. Um, or, you know, at least in that same ballpark. It's not like a regional airport somewhere. It's more like a container ship port. And that's pretty exciting um, because at the end of the day, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled. You can go on Wikipedia and you can look up Mars exploration architectures and there's about 100 different cases people have come up and you're know, from Von Braun all the way through to Mars Direct through to the, the, the NASA design reference mission. And all of them are essentially trying to solve this almost impossible problem, which is how do we get a handful of humans to Mars, keep them alive for a few years and then get them back to Earth with... <laughs> dozens of tons of stuff which is a very very small number yep. i mean they're like a well-organized camp at burning man can move more than dozens of tons of stuff um the ancient egyptians routinely moved statues that weighed that or more with just human muscle power um and so it's it's, it's an extremely harsh constraint that was so internalized by generations of engineers that no one really kind of allowed themselves to dare to think what would it be like if oh we could solve that problem we'll just launch a thousand sls's you know that's that's like that's crazy talk yeah yeah <laughs> could launch one um you know or, or two or something like that um and and so you know we've actually seen a lot of people take their favorite pet architectures and say well it'd be with a starship or two i could you know launch this twice as fast or with half the cost it's like no i think think different okay if if you're if you're flying say 100 starships simultaneously you're flying 10 million tons of cargo low with orbit every year and 90% of that is just fuel, which you need to get from there to wherever you're going. So you need a net million tons of cargo per year uh, from the surface of the Earth into deep space. Um, and say, we'll send most of that to the moon and some of it to Mars. What can you do in a million tons a year? Well, that's a lot of cargo. Like, that's enough to, to really start digging some big holes and making some big, you know, right. and, and mines and factories and um, monorails and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and so, like, you know, it is your position i guess you know in reading your your writing that that this hasn't really sunk in to many people i mean i think they're you know the people who are watching this listening to this this has occurred to them uh some people are skeptical which is which is fine you know we're we're still before this has all happened but <clears throat> there's no reason according to the laws of physics why this couldn't be possible no it's not impossible at all um and you know, uh, we can be reasonably confident that whatever form the Starship takes when it's able to do this, it won't look that much like the Mark One Starship, may it rest in peace. Um, but the the thing that will survive almost unchanged is the fundamental question which it's trying to answer, which is a fully and rapidly reusable spacecraft for transporting stuff to low-Earth orbit and beyond. It'll be a two-stage booster. It will have, um, you know, uh, essentially blunt body reentry characteristics, so it won't be a lifting body. Um, it will have propulsive landing. Uh, it will use a uh, high-efficiency methane oxygen engine, most likely. Um, and you know, it will be, essentially, once it's in production, the, the major constraint on launch mass to uh, orbit might actually not be engine production rate or vehicle production rate, but rather launch site production rate. So how quickly can you pour concrete you know, down on the coast of Texas and, and Florida and anywhere else that kind of faces a bit of ocean uh, where the sun rises, like facing east? Right. Um, you know, somewhat close to the equator, although really it doesn't matter all that much. Uh, so, I mean, so I guess the question, like if you've got the ability to launch this much, this, this much stuff, you're going to run, like with the current launch manifest that is out there, you're going to run it pretty quickly. And in fact, SpaceX has already run across this problem. They've they've essentially, by reusing their, their first stage boosters, they're at the point now where they're waiting for, in many cases, the actual satellite payloads to be finished. And, and their, um, their in-between plan is just start filling those rockets up with Starlinks and launching those instead while they wait for other for other payloads. So so that's the second thing that you also went on at length about was 
you're under you also feel that people are sort of underestimating the potential for something like Starlink. Can we so can we go into that? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm not an expert on on the you know, global launch market or anything like you that. Did, but I, I had right. heard around the around the traps that the you I did the math. That, that, is, that SpaceX is yeah. um, essentially. Yeah, I did the math. Yes, and they did. But I've also heard that, that SpaceX has run into the situation where they've, um, how do I say that their, their production process is less terrible than the than the customer's production process, which means that the um, it's now a seller's sorry buyer's market rather than seller's market for launch, which is somewhat unusual. Normally, satellites sit around waiting for a rocket um, rather than the other way around. Um, uh, but you know, this is not the end of the world. It turns out that if the global uh, total industry in space about three hundred billion dollars a year. About three billion of that, or one percent, is launch. Um, you know, one or two percent is launch, and uh, and SpaceX has done a pretty good job of uh, essentially, if not taking over that market completely, then being in a position where it could do so with reasonably trivial effort. Um, but three billion dollars, you know, any percentage of three billion dollars is still a small number of billions, and um, Elon is really. I mean, I can't I can't speak directly for him. I, I, he hasn't told me anything, but. Um, but if you're trying to build a city on Mars, you need more than a small number of billions of dollars. So um, it has to, has to think bigger. And, and something they realized, according to Gwyneth Shotwell in 2013, was that their customers who are building these satellites, which normally cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build and launch and operate, were still operating at higher margins than the launch companies. Um, so it's kind of neat because they can get into satellite production, leveraging their existing engineering skills and, and, and so on. And I don't think for a second that it's been easy, but it's not impossible. Uh, and they can build a product which which does better than their primary product in a in a market that's somewhat less competitive, and um, and at the same time, you know, essentially become their own customer. Um, which, I mean, they didn't really have it, so it's good that their only option turned out to be a good one. Yeah, and I mean, you ran the math that, for example, like with say the you know the first stage is reused you've got the cost of the fuel you've got the cost of the fairing you estimated a million dollars for a fairing but they are reusing the fairing so maybe you can you know you can remove that cost once yeah yeah once um, well you know it's 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 a work in yeah. progress um there's the uh the upper stage yeah, you estimated four million dollars for for the upper stage so they're looking at less than 10 million dollars uh, a lot of people think that's very optimistic okay yeah, more, yeah. but let's say ten million dollars. Ten million dollars Yeah, but I think I think at the end of the day, like, so the Starlink launches on Falcon are a bridge, really. Like, like Starlink doesn't really become exciting until it's launched on Starship, uh, at which point it goes from you know sixty satellites launched to three hundred satellites per launch, um, and much much higher rate. I think I think they can do some serious damage with just uh, Falcon launches, but really to do the global internet for everyone, um, they'll have to use uh, Starship. Yeah, but the I mean, everybody. But yes, even even with Falcon, they can totally crush the competition. It's not even close. Yeah, yeah, and right, yeah. and and you like forget what you you did the math that you know that within a couple of days they've paid back their launch costs and construction costs, and then and then they just start making money. Yeah, I mean, so that the the only specific calculation I did, I just did to order of magnitude. I didn't want to get more precise than that. Yeah. Um, because you know it's. If you try and get more precise than that, your blog post tends to date more quickly, um, as as it in fact already has in some ways. But um, <laughs> uh, but you know, basically picking numbers that were both realistic and, and plausible, um, and found that you know the the satellites could pay themselves off within weeks of launch, um, possibly a small number of months. Um, and obvious and, and and the interesting thing is that as the constellation gets bigger, um, that number actually gets smaller. So the there's, there's not diminishing returns. Essentially, there's, there's quite a high cost to enter the market. That cost gradually diminishes and then continues to, to drop off quite quickly as, um, as the, the coverage kind of reaches, uh, reaches full coverage. But, I mean, if, if they're able to pull this off and they're able to, I mean, you know, by your estimation, I guess they should be able to provide internet to the scale that they expect the launch cost should be so low and the construction costs of these satellites are so low that it's just a machine that'll print <clears throat> enormous amounts of money when you consider the scale of the global telecommunications market is it is a many trillions market 
and they stand to take an enormous chunk of it. Like no one can really compete against what they're they could be offering if they if they pull this yeah. off. Well, they're taking an enormous risk, um, obviously, and and there's still plenty of what I'd call execution risk um, or mission risk that they face. I think there's a good chance they will prevail. I really hope they do. Maybe I'm biased because I, I believe in the mission, um, but. Uh, and, and, and I think it's, it's safe to assume that if it becomes as valuable as, as we hope, that the governments will line up to find ways to take a piece of the action. Right. Um, but even then, <laughs> um, as, as, as you know, essentially they, they want to do, but even, even then there should be um, enough to go around uh, to, to really provide that river of gold or ocean of gold necessary to, to replicate industrial stack in deep space. And people, I think, I have a future blog post planned about this, but people generally underestimate just how hard it is to live at all on the moon, even for a couple of days, like in the Apollo missions, let alone live on the moon indefinitely or on Mars indefinitely, let alone do so, you know, not like Antarctica where they have constantly supply, but, but in a way that you're actually trying to um, build up mines and, and, uh, and farms and things like that and, and fully industrialize. And when people think about this, they tend to think about um, the, the, you know, mythical uh, American frontier history, um, wherein you know, the rugged uh, American pioneer kind of, struggled west and um, ignoring all the genocide uh, yeah. you know, with, with 20 acres and a mule was was able to kind of be self-sufficient. Um, and, you know, there are certainly environments on Earth that are more benign to human life than Midwest America, but there's, there's certainly many that are far less benign. Um, and so a good example I like to give people is, you know, sure, a human can live more or less indefinitely in their pajamas on Hawaii or something, uh, but take them five meters underwater and see how long they'll last there. Um, and, and really the surface of Mars... It, much nicer than the surface of the sun, um, but it's still a place that's that's an incredibly hostile environment for humans to survive. Let alone, you know, yeah. build a, a industry capable of of producing anything that the United States can produce. We're talking millions, if not tens of millions, of people, and just, I mean, I, I don't know enough about it to do to do the full design work, and I don't right. think anyone does. But it's it's a really really big problem. It needs a lot of money. Yeah, because you literally have to support every single thing that the human body requires like you can you extract almost nothing of value out of the environment apart from a little bit of mediocre <coughs> gravity um some possible building materials and sunlight like that's all you get and everything yeah. else you are you are either having to create from scratch in a closed environment or you know uh scraping out of uh, what you can find so so yeah, then well, you know so I'm sort of I'm setting this up here and, and here comes the part where I think we may have a bit of a disagreement. But so we've okay. got this incredible rocket that is capable of launching just a ludicrous amount of material Marsward. We've got mm -hmm. a, a global Internet system that is fountaining money that's going to pay for the whole process. But the goal is to we sure, you know, again, this is, yeah. you know, we're this is this is potentially the what could happen as these two streams come together but but then the the goal is as stated by elon musk is to settle mars hmm. settle the moon Does, i mean they're awful places right like they're just terrible totally. so yeah, does that make sense i mean i mean i i totally get that for people there's this as you said there's this sort of this idea of sort of pushing the, the frontiers out and attempting to live in new places, but that gets old really quick when you can't breathe. So, so how do you feel about those as objectives for people to go to use all this money and all this launch capacity to actually attempt to live in places that are, that are terrible? Um, that is a good question and a lot of ink has been spilled fundamentally trying to answer the why question and, yeah. and every now and then people talk about oh we need a backup for humanity and so on i, I i've grown to think um that's a pretty dark reason <laughs> um but um but i think fundamentally it's it's about having an expansive future for humanity uh, which is which is you know basically the same argument but with that happier twist on it um and i think that there's a bunch of really really difficult problems to solve um, but I would be very surprised if finding volunteers was the the one that we got stuck with. Um, there's, there's, there's always, I mean, people out there who, who really have a, 
a deep intention to go and do something and be part of history and to try and, and test themselves. I know for my own part, when I was somewhat younger, I, I went out and did completely optional things that made no sense. Uh, we, we celebrate the exploits of mountain climbers and Antarctic explorers. And, you know, it's, it's still very competitive to get a job in Antarctica, for example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have you know, thousands, of tens of thousands, millions of people worldwide who, who volunteer to be part of the armed forces. Um, which is a you know it's an act of, of kind of nation building service in a way it's analogous in some ways but at the same time also involves putting yourself in harm's way under someone else's command for really pretty small pay um, so uh, you know I, I don't I don't believe there'll be a shortage of volunteers that you know there'll be some challenges obviously um, you know managing managing aspects of scaling the organization in the early days as any rapidly scaling organization. Um, but yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting to see. Um, one, of, one of the things that I think a lot of people underestimate, they, they, they envision that, that people living on Mars will essentially be prisoners in a way because they'll be working for no pay on Elon's uh, luxury club med estate or something. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a slight misconception because um, just the, the cost of getting people to Mars and keeping them alive there is so stirringly high um, that anything that anyone can think of to reduce the demand on labor there will basically happen. So we're, we're talking major automation and, and very advanced technology, but at the same time, we're also talking um, a strong premium for, for experts and, and specialists, um, just as there is in, in very, very high, um, high risk, high margin pursuits like uh, oil rigs or stuff like that uh, today. And so really it'll attract um, relatively unattached, uh, quick learning, uh, ambitious, uh, skilled people um, who are willing to take risks and get paid stupendous sums of money. It doesn't really matter how much you pay people to work on Mars. Early on, they won't have much to spend it on. Um, but, you know, obviously, they can yeah. bank it in, in, on Earth and, and their family can spend it or they can spend it when they get home. Uh, but the, the overall cost of keeping someone alive on Mars is so stupendously high that it doesn't matter if you pay them a million dollars a year or a hundred million dollars a year. It just doesn't <laughs> make right. any difference to the overall cost of the, of the enterprise. So, so the, the sort of money we're talking about is it would be described as quite motivational um, for most most people who are in a position to essentially freelance their skills. Um, but at the same time, you know, money will tend to motivate people, but not beyond about you know, 60 hours a week or something. So right. they also have to have a strong belief in the, in the mission, which I think would be, I mean, we've probably been involved in, in things like this where, where it's kind of a strong team-based effort and people get together and, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you won. Um, <laughs> but, I know it's late. We're doing the I have to do the interview late. I'm doing a live interview right now. So if you want to be on live on the internet, I'm still in my tech one. Okay. All right. Well, let me finish the. No, 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 it's fine. Um. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> There's my daughter. Good day. There we go. Hold on. There we go. All right. Um. <laughs> she just she just got her black belt. Like in, oh, congratulations! Yeah. What what uh, what thing? Yeah, she can't uh, she can't hear oh, you. He put, he put his name on you. <laughs> um, right. So, I mean, I think that that's the part. And I, you know, one of my friends, uh, Cody from Cody's Lab, uh, is is watching right now. Oh, oh, great! I, I love that guy. Um, yeah. I send him emails every now and then, but I think he's too busy to reply. He's he's so cool. Well, there you go, Cody. Uh, you should talk to each other because uh, you know it, if there are people who do really want to live on Mars, uh, Cody's one of them. And you know he signed up for the Mars One project. He is testing out every single. Um, he's building a base in in Nevada somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Super fascinating. Um, yeah. And. And so he, the, you're exactly right that there are that there are people who, for them, this is this is absolutely one of the most fascinating things that they could do, and totally worth doing for their lives. And I have I have mad respect for anyone who wants to do that, but I know it's absolutely not me, right? I really enjoy Earth. I enjoy oceans. I like rivers. I like trees. And and how would you like to be part of building a new ocean? I'll visit when it's done. <laughs> right? Well, that's fine. That's fine. And the thing is, yeah. like, as the as the population on Mars ramps up, obviously, the the early days will be extremely tough, extremely pioneering, kind of um, 
out there types thing, the sort of stuff that Cody's into, right? Um, and then over time, you know, the creature comforts will increase. And, and I've got a post a plan in the future which talks about sort of how much area you need and why it's not enough to think about, you know, essentially pressurized RVs and, and little domes and things. You have to sort of think about tenting tens of thousands of acres per year um, and pressurizing it and having farms and factories and stuff all in shirt sleeves environment. And so over time, this population ramps up the, the creature comforts and amenities and so on will improve and over time maybe it will terraform the place and the you know, yeah the atmosphere will be merely poisonous but not enough of a vacuum to like blast your eyeballs out or something um but that's fine because over time that you know as it appeals to more and more people it will need more and more people and even if you never want to go that's fine because there's you know, roughly 10 billion humans and yeah. you only need a million to go to mars maybe two um and that's a very very small fraction of the total number of people who even have advanced degrees so and it also part of it is like you know in it's sort of like when like when you think about say building the great pyramids of giza right it was yeah. a monumental accomplishment by a nation state to be able to build something of that scale but now yes. with our modern technology with our machinery you know it would be a project but you could there could be many of them built around the world if people set their minds to it and were willing to kick a, kick out a couple of say tens of millions of dollars and a bunch of construction equipment they could build pyramids of giza kind of anywhere they wanted you almost automate it yeah right and so and so it's it's a factor of of increasing infrastructure and technology and capability that makes what used to be a heroic accomplishment something that's more straightforward and so it and so it's for me, it sort of feels like it's a question of when, right? When do you want to try to live on Mars? Do you want to do it when it's just barely possible? Like, like landing humans on the moon back in the Apollo 11, you know, during the Apollo era, it was just barely possible. It took the entire resources of this entire of the US to be able to accomplish this. Now, Elon Musk is going to build a starship and then maybe it's going to be able to make the trip and land and people are going to do this and it'll cost tens of millions of dollars and they'll come back home and then say we did it. And so that's possible. And you can imagine over time that setting up a city on Mars, setting up living in space, whatever it's going to be, there will be more and more infrastructure that these things aren't as crazy and just start becoming um, a, a natural, inexpensive, obvious thing to do next and it's just a question of when people are going to want to accomplish it and so it feels to me like it's it's farther down the road than a lot of people want and i guess it's kind of then it's mm. outside of our lifetimes but kind of inevitable That's if it's sad yeah i have to eat my greens and do some exercise so i live long enough and to, your third robot body right but as the as the um as the the energy needs of the world continue as we acquire more and more of of just the resources of the solar system as we reach out farther and farther and our the growth of humanity just grows exponentially it's just a matter of time before we've dismantled mercury and built a dyson sphere and we're you know on our <laughs> way to a type 3 civilization so i don't know about that we'll see well maybe <laughs> um, well, I, we've already begun the Dyson Sphere, right? We've got a couple of spacecraft. They've got solar panels. It's already started. They're orbiting the sun, right? So, um, well, the problem with the Dyson Sphere is there's not enough matter in our solar system to build one. Well, we'll get as far as we get, right? Yeah. We're just, in, yeah. You know, we, we, we build the Dyson Swarm, one solar collecting satellite at a time. Um, <laughs> but so then... But you also, I mean, there's some really exciting stuff that's on your blog, but there's a lot of concepts as well that you are less positive on. And there's a few I'd love to talk yeah. about why you think they're not going to happen. Yeah, sure. So one is beaming power from space. Yeah. Why is that a terrible idea? Okay, so I'm, I'm guessing from, from the way we've started here that, that you've read and are an adherent to um, O'Neill's book, The High Frontier, which is a great, a great book. And actually, define adherent. I don't know read it and think it's a good idea um i've, I've read it at, um, fairly recently actually on the recommendation of, of a few colleagues but um and i have a review of it somewhere in the in the murky past of my blog where i talk about it and it's it was a book that was written just before the space shuttles started flying so it was kind of in some ways written in the same way that my blogs are written now just before starship starts flying and, and it really kind of um grows out of the same hope which is that in the very near future we will have essentially very, very cheap flight to low Earth orbit and what can we do with that? And, and um, O'Neill got very excited by this idea of, of um, building cities in space with essentially rotating uh, hollow spheres or, or cylinders and 
we worked out ways of bootstrapping the construction using lunar materials and a whole bunch of other stuff that was super advanced in the 1970s. Very, very, very clever guy. Um, he also invented a precursor to the GPS system. And he had a very, very interesting career. Um, and, and actually, another connection to my own career, he worked on something that's a bit like the Hyperloop just before he died. So that's that was kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, the question when you have to do this, you know, as, as any kind of deep space uh, settlement is you say, well, does it make money or does it use money? And my, my view on this has always been, well, these things use money. And that's why uh, Elon needs to get out ahead of everyone else and build Starlink and make squillions and squillions of dollars and spend it on this. But you say, oh, well, we don't have that ability. We need it to make money. Then you have to start constructing some kind of um, narrative in which uh, going to space is worthwhile, financially speaking. And this is very hard to do because right. with, a, with a few narrow exceptions that I can get into, essentially everything that goes to space costs more money than it makes. And the, the exceptions are communication satellites and to some extent space tourism and uh, some Earth observation stuff, which is pretty niche. And then obviously there's uh, military uses of space, which is they have blank check, but that's a different kind of story. Um, and so uh, O'Neill was essentially, like many others before him, had looked at this problem and he decided the solution was since you know, mining stuff in space is difficult because it costs too much money to get the mass out there and bring it back because moving mass around in space is extremely expensive. The solution was to create something of value and then send it to Earth using electromagnetic radiation, um, which is essentially what communication satellites do. They, they have data uh, essentially encoded in microwaves uh, and value per bit or something is is well, I don't know, it's like a dollar per gigabit or something like that is the, is the current cost of, of data down a, a high-speed internet line. Um, but if you think, if you look at the amount of power actually needed to transmit a gigabit of data, it's, it's a very, very small amount. It's like it's in the tens of watts or something like that. It's a very, very small amount of, of electrical power. Whereas if you look at the, the cost of electricity uh, on the Earth, which right now is you know somewhat less than 10 cents a kilowatt hour and falling fast thanks to solar power, um, and you translate that the same way, it works out that uh, microwaves that are, that are kind of chopped up with data are worth something like a billion times more than microbes which are just blasting power. Um, and so while it happens that you can put up a communication satellite and you can actually make money over time, if you just use that same architecture, which is solar panel generating power, making microwaves go down to the earth, being received by essentially glorified antennas and converted into power being used, um, it's, it turns out that that makes no money. Um, and in fact, it's like off by a factor of a billion roughly or something like that. And you can look through my blog and I, uh, Max Fagan actually is a, is a person who's done some incredibly detailed calculations on this, but essentially gets back to the same answer. Um, and so it turns out that, you know, you can't make money. This is actually not a surprise. Uh, all good businesses uh, take something where, it, where you can obtain it cheaply and sell it somewhere where you can sell it for more money. And the problem with uh, power is that it's much more expensive to make it in space than it is to make it on Earth. And it's much, much cheaper to buy it on Earth than it is to buy it in space. So really, if you were in the business of transmitting power through space, you'd be better off uh, transmitting power from the Earth <laughs> to satellites in space that right. needed it um, <laughs> than the other way around. Um, that said, no one's going to try and do that because it turns out solar panels are essentially two-dimensional. They don't have a big mass penalty. So um, you can easily deploy almost arbitrarily large solar panels in space to power your space station or your communication satellite, whatever. Um, and that's what people have been doing since forever. Um, I think one of the one of the things that generated the most controversy um, in that particular blog post where I talk about space power is not a thing. And then someone's like, you need to read all these articles by some people who've done some stuff. And I read through all the articles and they went into vast detail on you know, how the widgets were together. And at the end of the day, still didn't actually answer the question of how much money can it make and how much money does it cost. Right. Um, was that the cost, just the cost of building the antenna on the surface of the earth to receive the power from space is about maybe 80% of the cost of building a solar farm of equivalent power. So right. if you can think of some way of doing the antenna, which is basically just pieces of metal on the surface of the earth for 80% of the budget, and then 20% of the budget is allocated to building this giant space station thing, which no one's ever built before and launching the whole thing into space and building it, and maybe some automated robots to make it out of pieces of the moon or asteroids or something. But that's 20% of the budget. Yeah. Um, and, oh, and by the way, the solar power is getting 7% for every year. Um, you know, yeah, right. I, so I one year really later, it's right. It's so, ludicrous. Yeah. yeah so it's, I, but it's I think ludicrous. that's so. that's a fantastic <laughs> way to really just judge all of this stuff, which is that either these things will make you money or these things will cost you money, and you can you can hmm. literally shuffle every single idea that's ever been presented into one of those two buckets. Um, you yeah. Know, yeah. Right. My, my, my take is that anything that's that's interesting to me in space, which basically means building an industrialized civilization, like highly technological industrialized civilization in space. I'm not talking about, you know, for one, I, mean, I don't mean to get down on Cody, but he's a very, very clever guy, but I don't think people on Mars will be like forging their own metal um, or anything like that. 
Uh, they won't be using human power to solve these problems. They have to use mechanized and roboticized power to solve these problems. Um, but that's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and the, the question, the interesting question for me is, what's the least money it can cost? Or what's the most you can do with a certain amount of money? So you can improve your cost efficiencies, but at the end of the day, it still costs money. Yes, yes. And, and so the other one, the other idea that's been proposed is acquiring resources from space going and finding just a single asteroid has is worth has 10 trillion dollars of of metals precious metals in it and you could bring it back to earth and the and, cocaine asteroid or something yeah and destroy the the uh, the economy with your one asteroid so why is that not a good way to make money well i mean imagine what would happen if you turned over a rock in your backyard and found an infinite platinum mine um you know, and you're in a country where, where you've got some money for that. In, in some countries like my native Australia, if you find a gold mine, the government owns it. Thank you very much. Um, what happens is that because the cost of platinum is essentially set by the interaction of supply and demand, uh, if you increase the supply infinitely, then then uh, the cost has to drop. Uh, that's just elasticity, price elasticity. Um, and so it turns out that, you know, if you say drop the price of platinum by a factor of two, you may induce additional demand. Um, but the overall size of that piece of the economy is unlikely to change by more than a factor of two or three, right. at most a factor of 10. And the total worldwide uh, size of the economy, which spends money on platinum, is less than a billion dollars. So, so even if you found a platinum asteroid, you know, the total cost of getting it, retrieving it, bringing it back to Earth and all, that, so on, all the rest of it, unless people discovered that platinum was something that they needed to eat uh, every day or something, then, then, then the overall size of the of that segment of the economy which would use that would be unlikely to grow more than a billion dollars and platinum is a very interesting metal and it's useful for all kinds of things but because it's so expensive it's not used much perhaps if it was much cheaper people would use it more often um would use it as substitute for copper and electronics or something but um i mean it's it's how do i put this um there's a lot of very interesting papers out there on asteroid mining and on mining the moon and so on um but the the papers that do actually include like rigorous cost estimates um, always show that it's a terrible idea. And if you need a, any proof for this, um, just call up any mining executive that you might happen to know and ask them, you know, does this look like a good prospect to you? Because these people have a very, very good nose for like what mining projects are likely to make money or not. And it turns out that even on the earth where essentially the workers can breathe air and there's a labor market that's available and you just have to dig a hole, get the stuff out, put it through a machine that you can buy off from cars to car and produce the stuff. Um, most mines still only just barely make money. Yes. Because it's all marginal supply, right? So, so the most of the mines are producing just you know at, at a fractions of a percent or whatever margin over their costs, and so you know the if you say well we want to do all of that, but you also have to do it in a in a frigid, airless, radioactive vacuum uh, that's three three days by by incredibly expensive, unreliable rocket ship from Earth, and there's no guaranteed market for it on return, and uh, you know, by the way, the technology doesn't exist yet. It's going to be like a 50 or $50 billion investment program to build the technology. You know, I'm pretty sure they'll very quickly show you the door. Because at the end of the day, if we need more copper, we just have to dig a deeper hole on Earth. You know, essentially infinite. The amount of material in the crust of the Earth is much, much more than the amount of material in the entire asteroid belt. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and, and because of tectonic and geological processes, quite often the material in the Earth is, is concentrated. And yeah, there's a handful of elements which are relatively rare in the crust for whatever reason but um but you know it's still a pretty good idea of where they are and and um yeah so i think we'll, we'll be much more likely to see say gold extracted from seawater than we are to see it extracted from mines on asteroids and things. unless unless there's actually a city being built on that asteroid and they need it to use it there right not on the Right. Well, yeah. and I guess that's the that's the key. Then is the the in situ resource utilization actually <coughs> using yeah. the resources you know, it does yeah. make sense to use Martian regolith if you're going to build a base on Mars. Absolutely. And that's because the cost of getting stuff from Earth to Mars is so high. Um, and some people think that because, you know, the same thing for the moon, essentially. Um, and people say, well, there's water on the moon. We can sell the water um, because Earth is a place where water is notoriously scarce. Um, <laughs> <coughs> yeah. <laughs> to be blunt. Um, I did the math on that a while ago and I was unable to convince myself that it was, it was always cheaper to extract water from the moon, even if you were at the South Pole, than it would be just to ship it to the moon right. uh, with Starship or something like that. Um, it depends on the volumes required and, and, and the amount of investment required. But it's, it, yeah, the water on the surface of the moon, it's not like you just turn on a tap and there it is. It's, it's kind of frozen stuff that's mixed in with mercury and other nasty stuff in the bottom of cryogenically cold craters that uh, 
and again, you can look up fabulous papers that describe these very complex science fiction ways of getting it out. And, um, and I think it's very interesting and I think people would try it if they were there, but I just think that if you needed a steady supply of water and it turned out that building a rod well or something was quite hard, that the, that you know, <laughs> we just call up right. Elon or Jeff Bezos and be like, can you deliver it? Put yeah. it on, put we'll it on NASA's hundred tab. hundred tons of water, like, please. No worries. <laughs> yeah. And it just shows up. Um, but exactly, now- exactly. And you'd, you'd have to have it anyway. You'd have to have a guaranteed supply chain anyway. So, so there would have to be a mechanism for getting anything you needed on the surface of the moon or Mars from Earth. It's just over time, you would do what you could to get it locally if you needed it. And the main reason you need to get water on Mars actually is to produce rocket fuel to fly back. And so that's, that's more than you can ship there realistically. Now, the, now you do have some good news. Realistically. <laughs> realistically, yeah. Um, which is that you don't think that uh, radiation in space is as bad as everyone is concerned. So why do you, why are you, um, yeah, yeah. why are you, why are you, uh, I guess, uh, more, uh, more sanguine about, uh, about the potential for, uh, for radiation in space? Yeah. So, I mean, people will point at me and say, well, you're a theoretical physicist, you're not a radi- radiation physicist. And I will freely concede that, um, I've merely read papers on the subject and we can do the math, but the. There's the some particle physics involved. Kind of uh, for a long time, this was almost in, a religious argument. You know, there's some particle physics involved. Done, in I was actually taught radiation physics in Australia by a by a, by a, a guy who defected from Persia after the um, after the coup there or whatever it was in the 1980s. So, you know, part of the reason then I struggled to get the building of a bomb is that people who knew how to do it left and came to Australia and other places and taught me how to well not how to build a bomb but how to do this sort of calculation. Um, so. Uh, we actually flew an instrument, and maybe, I mean, not me personally, NASA flew an instrument on um, on the last rover which went to Mars uh, that measures the radiation that a human would receive. And it turns out that as people knew, when you're in deep space, if there's a coronal mass ejection or a solar flare, um, you can get basically a fatal dose if you're not shielded, which is bad news, but you can build a, a reasonably um, small radiation shielded area of the spaceship with you know a few inches of water or something like that, and you'll be okay. Um, but once you're on the surface of Mars, you actually have a bit of shielding from the planet itself and then from the atmosphere, which, although it's thin, is not entirely useless. Uh, and the total amount of radiation that you could expect on the surface of Mars is about 200 millisieverts a year, which is a lot more than it would you get on Earth <coughs> in most places, um, unless you were getting regular medical x-rays or something. Um, but there are actually a few places on Earth where the natural background radiation is that high or, or nearly that high. And we don't have a strong statistical signal that it's bad for you. Um, there's been hundreds and hundreds of studies, and some have shown you know, slightly increased risk of certain kinds of cancers if you're a young, you know, like a child or something, and some have shown no increased risk. But, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of these um, studies, you know, or similar studies have shown that if you smoke or if you drink a lot of alcohol, if you live by a freeway or you stay up late at night, they're talking to friends on the internet or something like that, then you have much uh, increased risk of premature death due to cancer and other lifestyle-related diseases, right. um, in particular if you're very overweight or you eat a lot of uh, hamburgers or something. Um, so you would expect that, you know, if you were exposed to a lot of radiation, that you know you would have a slightly increased um, statistical risk of getting cancer. And I think it's probably fair to say that if you had a large population of Mars all taking 200 millisieverts a year, then yes, the risk of of cancer would be incrementally increased. But the risk of dying other things also increases. So kind of evens out. Sorry. Yeah. Do you need to grab some water? <coughs> Did you want to grab some more water? I'm going to take two if that's okay. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let me see here. I see a couple of questions there. Uh, while he, well, he grabs some water. Um, so, uh, Brandon Frazier says, uh, Frazier, <laughs> can they run a high voltage current through Starship's hull and help create a bar- barrier from radiation with the magnetic field that it would create? I actually did a whole video all about the possibility of building an artificial magnetosphere around a, a spaceship. And the gist of it, I mean, uh, both NASA and the European Space Agency has really tried to be able to do that. And and so far, they haven't been able to create one that is more economical than just having a lot of water. So just protons, uh, just having a lot of protons between you and space currently is the most efficient way to be able to get this done and very reliable, right? Which is you just have a, you know, good shielding. Um, if there is a coronal mass ejection, you just build a fort and you just hide in the middle of it and wait till the storm is over. So 
like so definitely and, and yeah i mean like literally for 50 years like it, it definitely has occurred to nasa and they have papers that they wrote 50 years ago about proposing some ways that they could do an artificial magnetosphere and still nobody has been able to um <laughs> crack the code to be able to to do that um so dylan o'donnell is in the uh, is in the chat right now out of australia and uh he says that your sister is going to be speaking at the 2020 uh, star stuff conference in uh in australia yeah well, she's been doing great work recently um she has a podcast called uh, space junk so you should all check it out yeah that's awesome yeah i was uh, i was at the the one in 2018 and it was uh it was a lot of fun so and a probably easier trip to get there from australia than to come from uh Unless she's not living in Australia still, but uh, she travels a lot actually. But she lives in Australia. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got a couple of questions here uh, in the last ten minutes. Are you doing okay? I mean, we can wrap this up if you're if you're if you're losing your voice. Um, I will be okay. You're gonna be all right. Okay, all right. Yes, I will. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, it's a couple. Arjun is asking, are those a bunch of rocket ships behind you? And uh, so yeah, yeah. Let's, so what do you got behind you there? Um, it's uh, a picture at launch of every single uh, rocket flight from the United States that took humans into space. So that includes the Mercury flights, the uh, Gemini, Apollo, Space Shuttle, Spaceship One. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's like one uh, you can see in his uh, just over his shoulder. Or you can't see now. There it is. Yeah. So you got you got Spaceship One there. Yeah, and then all of those uh, all of those shuttles. Okay. And I think I see some X. I see like the oh, yeah, X15 uh, up X15. there. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was a fun afternoon putting all those pictures together. Um, I have a version with all the, all the metadata as well. That's amazing. Um, have you seen someone did, uh, people have done like a, like a synchronized shot of like a whole bunch of space shuttles all launching at the same time <laughs> day and night. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. And that's just the ones that have launched from the United States. So I can just imagine if you add the ones that have launched yeah. from Russia, the ones that have launched from China, like that's a, that's a big Yeah. Launch. So I have, I have a version of just China's six launches and uh, Russia's about 190, <laughs> but actually there aren't publicly public photos of about six of Russia's launches or Soviet Union launches. So I haven't completed that poster yet. Um, if anyone knows where to find photos of a very early classified uh, Soviet, uh, crude launches to space. Please let me know because I'm trying to complete that poster for like three years now. Right. Had, yeah. I mean, is it going to take a trip to Russia to the to Star City? It's, uh... um, I don't even know if photos exist, to be honest. Oh, it's, um, yeah. I mean, maybe. I, I've asked around and I haven't heard anything. So. Um, <clears throat> so let's get a couple more questions here. Um, so uh, Brendan Fraser asks, um, see, it's very hard for me to say the word Fraser because, you know, I see it Fraser. Um, would Starlink be able to communicate interplanetary with the addition of simple relay satellites to connect the network? So do you see Starlink being able to assist with interplanetary communications? Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that I'm very excited about trying with Starlink is to build a distributed antenna with it. Um, obviously I don't get to do that myself, but maybe someone listening to this will be like, that sounds like a cool idea. I'll put in some software that does it. Um, <coughs> and then, you know, obviously with that antenna, the, the wider it is, the better and the earth is very wide. So you can do a very directed beam. So when you say a directed beam. antenna, like, like, can you, what, what would you want to do here? I don't, I don't understand. Uh, radio astronomy and, and deep space uh, network communication, um, you know, talking to Voyager or something like that. So and, like uh, make your own event horizon telescope out of Starlink? Uh, yeah, essentially, but in the radio. Um, you could do uh, a radar tracking of asteroids and um, investigation of, say, Venus's atmosphere or something like that. So all kinds of cool things. Just with a distributed network of, of satellites yeah. orbiting around the yeah. Earth with... Well, you would, I mean, one of the things Good that... Way to find radio on there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the, the a future generation of the Starlinks, they're going to be able to actually put payloads on these things. So they'll do their their main job of being able to c provide communications for the Earth, but there will be room, theoretically, for payload for space telescopes and and things like that. And maybe that'll be one of the ways that, that um, Elon Musk will try to reduce some of the ire of astronomers who've, who've lost pieces of their of their night sky 
of their night sky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe we'll see. I don't know if uh, Starlink satellites the best um, platform for space telescopes. No, um, no, and yeah, having telescopes that are moving with different baselines all the time, that wouldn't really <laughs> value there. So, um, yeah, I think I just think painting them black would probably be a good approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I thought I mean. Yeah. He said that they were going to look into painting to painting them black for the uh, for the next <clears> launch, and and I had heard that they might have already done that with with the second launch, but there's no way around the actual um, uh, solar panels. So, um, yeah, I mean, yes and no. There there are, there are tricks you can play. At the end of the day, um, the satellites when they're in the in the Earth's penumbra will always have some albedo. Yeah. Um, the good news is that if you're at a equatorial observing site, then when astronomical twilight essentially all the satellites will set it about that point and and so you will still have that you know blessed seven or eight hour window in which you can observe without asteroids uh or sorry without satellites being a problem of course the planes are flying over it's still yeah. the same issue but um yeah we're gonna have to get smart about how uh, astronomers and and starlink and everyone else shares this resource so yeah well and and <coughs> where i am we see satellites all the time because I'm at a more northern uh, latitude, and so especially we, in summer, the sun essentially doesn't really set if you're in the upper atmosphere. For, yeah, exactly. And so we'll see satellites. You know, we we see this the International Space Station fly overhead and watch its full pass, and then 90 minutes later we watch it again, <laughs> and then 90 minutes later we watch it again. So it's uh, you know. <laughs> In the summer, exactly when 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 you get those full passes, it's uh, it's quite a thing. And I've definitely had the, um, uh, I've had the the ISS you know <laughs> do a uh, photo bomb through one of my one of my photos. <laughs> and um, I'm sure Dylan O'Connell will, will have plenty to say about that. But um, yeah, yeah, well, Chris Dylan just like shooting overhead, being like playing his guitar, and like nine minutes later, he's still playing his guitar. Yeah, Dylan, Dylan. Uh, takes shots of like uh, the one that, that I really love. He took, he took a photograph of the Rosette Nebula and it had a bunch of, of actual um, <coughs> uh, geosynchronous satellites just slowly dawdling their way through his photographs. So, yeah. you know, and then he has to remove them. So he's very well aware of, of, how, to, of how to do that. Um, if you look closely, you can find unusual things out there, you know, the various classified satellites and so on. But if you've got a big enough telescope, you can actually see them and be like, wow, that's really big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, <coughs> Livid Creature asks, uh, what kind of security do they have in place? Do, is hacking? I mean, what do you think about the potential for someone to hack? I mean, their computers, they're hackable, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that they're strong targets, like like big targets. Yeah. Um, and uh, But I think that, that, you know, Planet Elon has quite a lot of um, production experience, that sort of thing, because they're the Teslas are also kind of in that ballpark, a big, big soft target, big juicy target essentially. And, and, um, and you know, they've, they've been, you can go on YouTube and find videos about people who pack their Teslas one way or another. And, uh, but Tes Tesla's been pretty responsive about pushing out software updates there. So I think that, you know, you can see some half-hearted attempts to do the same thing with Starlink, but I suspect that, that there is, they have as, as much chance as anyone of not being totally pwned. I yeah. Hope. <laughs> um, I mean, you do need uh, certain kinds of, of capability to be able to send a directed signal to a satellite as it's passing overhead. I mean, there's, it's a little more complicated technically than walking up and trying to clone a key fob for someone's Model S. So. Well, I mean, everyone who has a Starlink subscription will have a, an antenna that can communicate with that satellite. Um, the question is, you know, how well siloed are the... The, the instruments versus you know the, the communications the router part versus the uh, satellite operations part i suspect that that uh tesla will at least encrypt the, the yeah. connection um i hope <laughs> um we'll find we, out we've reached uh the end of our of our hour um and i and i know you are uh it's time for bed um for all of us uh it's so so late i'm never up this late um yeah, but but casey thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today that was super fun. fun um and uh you know i think it was i've really really enjoyed uh your writing so please don't stop and definitely continue to uh both 
provide, you know, sort of beyond anyone's wildest optimistic expectations, and at the same time, dunking on uh, people's uh, sci-fi uh, dreams. I think both are, are really valuable, and I've, I've really been enjoying it. So um, we'll put a link to your blog here, as well as some of your other, your other work. And uh, what's the best way, if a person wants to follow you, go to the blog, see what you're doing there? Uh, if you want to just interact with me, probably find me on Twitter is the easiest way. Um, I also get um, emails and stuff. My email address is not hard to find, but um, yeah. but I prefer if you've got a good question, just put it on the blog or put it on Twitter because then other people can see the answer to it as well. Um, Great. That's, that's just good. Yeah. And I'm going to try and be optimistic, even in my you know pessimistic posts. There's always going to be like a note of optimism. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I, the, the longer I do this, the more um, realistic I've become. But I definitely still try to bring the the optimism, and uh, you know, uh, I'm still as fascinated and excited and hopeful about what humankind is doing for the future of of space flight as I've ever been. But I, and especially now that I understand the nitty gritty details, I'm I'm as excited as as ever. So, uh, Casey, super fun. I I'm really looking forward to everything else you do into the future, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll come back and have you come talk to us again sometime. Yeah, if someone else ever reads my blog ever again, that'd be fun. <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen. Yeah, just just say SpaceX whatever, and then people will show yeah. up. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you.